0: Hello and welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm your host, Jason Sachs. Thanks for joining us this week. Today I talked to Zach Davison longtime friend of mine, and a uh, very esteemed translator of manga, particularly the work by Shigeru Mizuki. And we have an interesting conversation in the next hour or so around uh, the different approaches he takes to translating different work, as well as some of his other passions in comics, including his deep, abiding love for Conan, which I just don't share and which I think is uh, pretty interesting. Please leave feedback on iTunes uh, check out our show notes on comicscavalcade.tumblr.com and uh, keep downloading. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show.
1: So welcome to Zach Davison. Thanks. Thanks. Yes. We've been uh, we've been drinking for a little bit now, so Jason's got me prepped to podcast.
0: Don't you know that's a secret to a good conversation? I do. I do. Yeah. I've learned and, that over the years. And after all, interview is a conversation. It's only a structure... To talk about what you worked on. First well, of all, as a translator.
1: You always were a better interviewer than I was. And just, you know, so, all of you on the podcast should know that Jason and I worked together. This is like one of those disclaimer <laughs> things. We didn't work together for, um, for a few years there on the Comics Bulletin. Isn't that the
0: secret when you got friends to like, get them to be your first guest? Exactly. Second easy landing? Right? You won't give me too much. Well, actually, you will probably give me too much of a hard time. But that's I will, okay. I will, yeah. Yeah, but uh, you're doing okay. Not bad. You're you're doing some translation? You've got a frickin' Eisner. I wish I had a frickin' Eisner. What? I've
1: got three Eisners now? You don't have a single one? Not a single Eisner. Not, not a That's one. one. A single. <laughs> yeah, I was I was talking to. Yeah, him. I'm a
0: slacker. I don't do anything. I
1: know. I was talking to Ben Applegate, uh, one of my editors, the other last time I was at the Eisen Awards. He's like, "Dude, do you still have room on your shelf for more of these things?" <laughs> I'm like, "Always got room." Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. What a terrible problem to have, Zach. I know. So you got the first one for uh, translation.
1: No, no, actually, I do. I have two now. So I've got, been nominated. So nominated. Four for four, but only one twice. You went for the Mizuki translation. Both of them were for the Mizuki translation. Yeah. Okay. And the most recent one I was nominated for was the Gotenabe's uh, H.P. Lovecraft, which I really because that was that was kind of fun. So it was the first time I was nominated for something besides the best manga c- category, which you know it's always nice. But do be nominated in the best adaptation, like I was, I'm I'm still a little bitter. That the Mizuki books didn't get nominated for the best nonfiction category, I felt that, that they deserved more than than just being the best manga category. So talk about Shigeru Mizuki because people who are listening to this may not know who he is. So and the story
0: is pretty incredible.
1: Shigeru Mizuki is one of those. He's a foundational figure in comic book art. Like to my mind, Mizuki Mizuki is so foundational that. In, in Japan, they have this saying that he's like air, in that he's all around you, and you're breathing him every single day to the point to where you forget it exists. But you cannot actually like there would be no almost so much of comics would not exist as we know it. American comics, Japanese comics, without Shigeru Mizuki, because he's he's one of the, he's a he's you know he's an Eisner. He's one of those foundational characters. He's one of the people who brought the concepts of. Of folklore and of looking backwards into comics, this is how I like to say. It. So, if you look at at his history, if you look at, at comics history in Japan at the time, so you have you have Mizuki himself, which he's once again he's a fascinating character, and I could talk about him forever. I mean, he fought in World War II, which is so, something that people like to like to talk about because obviously it was hugely impactful and it makes him interesting, right? It's like, oh, he was a World War II veteran. Well, and he, the, uh, he wrote manga about that, which is some of my favorite work. He, he did, he did. He wrote manga about that. But he never wanted to which was really interesting about him was that he didn't want to. and He was almost sideboarded into that because he tried to make manga about what he really loved, which was folklore. But all of his editors were like, well, no one's buying this. No one's buying monsters. No one's buying all this folklore stuff. Oh, you fought World War II. Make some war comics. And he hated war. God, he hated war so much. But it was his only end. So he started making war comics just because that was the only thing anyone would buy from him. And he eventually built up his place in Japanese society where he was able to introduce what he really wanted to do was to write these sort of like weird monster comics. And, you know, I mean, once again, I could talk about this for hours, but if any of you have ever popped open your phone and played Pokemon Go, it's because of Mizuki. If any of you have ever seen a cartoon like called Naruto or something like that, it's because of Mizuki. If you know what a nine-tailed fox is. If you, I mean, he's the one who basically, like, rescued the... con. Like, if you've ever read Hellboy, it's because of Mizuki. He's the one who introduced the concept of sort of, like, folklore into comic books.
0: And that's a folklore thing that became such a fundamental part of Japanese society.
1: Absolutely. Where, like, he's now treated as, like, a, one of the Disney's... Of, uh, uh, japan i mean he 's even beyond disney it 's really hard to consider what his role is i mean he was he was literally i mean I, the only like equivalent that I could call it is knighted but it 's not it 's not quite the same so he was given a, uh, an award in Japan called a Personal Cultural Merit which is an official recognition that he's someone who has contributed so much to Japanese, to, to the society and culture, that it would be a different world had he never existed. And so this was the award that he was given from the emperor as a, a person of cultural merit. And when Mizuki died, the emperor of Japan laid a, you know, laid a, a wreath on his, um, on his grave. And um, there was a, a sign up there, and it said, um, you know, Arigato Dai-sensei, which is, thank you, great teacher. Which is, I mean, I, I cannot literally imagine any person who's ever worked in comics that is as acclaimed within his own country as Mizuki is. There's simply no equivalent. Well, the thing is,
0: too, like, does someone makes it sound like he's um, he's telling folklore stories? But they're fun stories, too. They're oh, they're
1: just- immensely fun. Yeah. But it's not just the folklore, but it is also his World War II stuff, like Showa history of Japan. I mean, like, and one of the things about Mizuki that was it was tricky when we were looking to bring him over is he's so multifaceted that he is impossible to market because you cannot market him as one thing. Like, because his books, like, where do you shelf them? Do you put them on the manga section? Do you put them, you know, in the nonfiction section? Like, he's just he's impossible to mag- to market as because he is so many things, you know. He's not even like, like, oh, hey, here's Disney. Disney does these awesome cartoons. They're great. They're built on the work of Charles Perrault, who was once a folklorist. And, you know, Disney took Charles Perrault's work and made these lovely fantasies. Fantastic. Disney also fought in the Vietnam War and was part of the Melee Massacre and Disney also created this really brutal work called My Melee Massacre that features Donald Duck in it this <laughs> lovely charming children's character that we've all adored I mean it's such a hard ability to market because there's because he is just he has so much about him Osho was such a fascinating book and like I it, it's one of the few books I keep coming back to
0: again and again because it so it does two things for me one is that it's portrays the Japanese society as it mm-hmm. really was at the time which is impoverished mm-hmm. uh, fighting just basically to survive and he tells it through his own family story which then is very specific but yep. also illuminates the larger society but he also like really tells the story when he goes off to war mm-hmm. and the banality of
1: it—oh, yeah—just the, just the like, ridiculous crap he goes like, through. The time that he's in a foxhole and has to take a take a dump is one of my favorite parts <laughs> of the whole story because it is is the banality of war. But also, and like one of the things about Showa, actually, if you realize, is that it was written. Like, when was it written? It was written during the late '80s, during the Japanese economic miracle. So, everyone in Japan is fat. Wealthy, you know, <laughs> top of the line. And they would love to forget that all this stuff happened. They would love to forget that Japan was ever allied with Hitler. They would love to just like... And the government actually went through this process as, as the Japanese government still does. And the American government does this too. So certainly, I mean, I remember growing up as a child in the Cold War and my textbooks were full of propaganda. Um, and so the Japanese government attempted to basically erase World War II from their own textbooks. And so Mizuki's creation of Showa was basically because this is a guy once again who's standing in Japanese society is at the absolute pinnacle He he is untouchable and so he creates Showa as a way of telling the world that no you do not get to forget this you do not, and anyone else's voice could have been silenced, but his voice was so loud that they could not silence him. The
0: best comparison I can think of would be as if Paul McCartney,
1: mm-hmm. fought in World War II, was telling stories about World War II right now. Exactly, exactly. And You'd have to have someone on that revered almost to a godlike standard, uh-huh. you know. Um, and Paul McCartney is probably a good as good example as we have, you know, someone who's just like who is beyond reproach, you know, absolutely beyond reproach. I think my first piece by him um, that you—I'm not sure if you translated this—was
0: "As We Go to Our Mournful Deaths" or as, whatever. No,
1: I actually didn't translate that. That was his previous translator. But "Onward to Our Noble Deaths," and that was interesting because that was his first foray. Because after—I mean, after he had done all of his his Kitado stuff, he decided that he wanted to do something that's more challenging with his own artwork. And once again, he didn't have to. I mean, he was just—he could have easily just yeah. been retired for the rest of his life. But he's like, I want to, I want to challenge myself. But he wasn't ready to get into his own real life then. So he had a middle layer there of creating fictionalized accounts um, because he wasn't tell, ready to tell the real story yet. And so that's what *Onward to Our Noble Death* is.
0: And that's a brilliant book, though, too, it because is.
1: again, it's like the banality of the actual yeah. fighting the
0: war versus the war itself, which I just find fascinating as, as someone who's like studied yeah. history. And, and is interested in like what it's like in the real world to be mm-hmm. fighting these wars. It just shows like there's just so much. I don't know what the best way to put it. It's like uh. it, it's telling telling an even slightly fictionalized story of his real life. Just illuminates
1: even normal life mm-hmm. in, in interesting ways. It does. And also, I think like it shatters one of the great myths of Americans. Like Growing up as an American, I'd always believed that the Japanese soldiers were you know, these obsessive, you know, like, willing to lay down their lives and die for the emperor and blah, blah, blah. And you realize reading his work that that's propaganda. That's not even Japanese propaganda. That's American propaganda that was told to the American people to dehumanize the Japanese soldiers in order to justify their killing. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this complex ballet of what is truth and what is real and you know like translating and well an onward earnable death also is like one of the things that makes it nice is that it tells a compact a compact tight story and real life never does. And I think that's one of the differences with it. As you can see its fictionality because it tells a all the you know ends are wrapped up and it's a nice little story and real life's never like that. But um, when you get into Shoah too, it gets a little more messier. And it's not as much of a compact, tight little story, but it also challenges like some of these really deeply held beliefs and national mythology that you grew up with.
0: That's what I love the most about it, and that it, showa continues into the 1960s, if I remember right. Because showa so,
1: continues all the way to the death of the
0: emperor in 1989. 1989. Yeah. Which then gets into his take on the Japanese economic miracle. Yep. So it's not just a war story, no. although that's a real core of what makes the story interesting. Mm. And uh, is fascinating, um, and we should get to the involvement of the uh, folkloric characters uh. in that. Um, but I think getting the perspective of the Japanese people as they're going through, the mm-hmm. or one specific person is going through the fall and rise of yep. Japan, his own career moving out of it, mm-hmm. and having gone through his own war injuries also... Yep. He's literally scarred by the war, but allow, But the war also allows
1: him to achieve something he never could have even dreamed of when he was a poor child growing up. Absolutely. And and even then, like when you get into his, you know, in the later years in 89, you know, of, of Shoahs, like, you know, he's he he has an immense survivor skill in that he survived all of this. And so he eventually, you know, goes, you know, back to Rabul, to the graveyards. Um, you know I mean not graveyards but basically the slaughter fields of all the people and he finds their bones are just still scattered across the beaches and so he tries to I mean he doesn't really try to it's not an act of redemption but he buries the bones on the beach you know of all these people and it's just like it's something that he would you know he has the physical scars obviously because he lost his arm but at the end the emotional scars run so much deeper and one of the parts of Showa that well when I was translating the series like I get so emotionally involved, like I was literally just fucking in huh. tears, huh. just rolling down my face when I was translating this, because there's this scene that is so emotionally impactful, but it's the fourth volume, and it's like almost the last few pages, but Mizuki turns and looks directly at the reader, and he says, you know, just don't ever forget this is real, this really happened to us, you know, like, don't just turn the page and think that, that this was an interesting comic, this was my life, and don't forget it, and like, that was so powerful.
0: Well, and as you said, like, as an American, like, you grew up in Spokane. You're reading, like, classic American history books. Oh, yeah. And yet here you are confronted with this Japanese approach to the war, yeah. which is different from what we read, but also interestingly
1: similar well, to it. And I think, you know, I mean, that's one of the, the great things about reading literature and translation, um, is that you have things you believe, and you believe them. You know, you believe them. actually... I can't can't remember his name, but he was the guy who does the Oatmeal. Do you remember his name? Oh, I can't. Uh, I can't remember his name either. But he wrote this really great comic strip, basically, about challenging your beliefs. And I remember that he was was this one conversation where he's like, so if I were to tell you that George Washington has wooden teeth, we all believe it, and it's fine. Now, let me tell you that recently they've done a forensic examination of his actual dentures, and they were not, in fact, wood. That is just a myth. His dentures were made up of a combination of gold, silver, donkey, horse teeth, and and elephant ivory. You can accept that. Let me tell you again that he had a second set of dentures that was made up entirely of slave teeth. And now you challenge that. It emotionally affects you more than the previous information you received. And to me, You know, reading literature and translation, there's sometimes that hit you like that, where you're like, (coughs) "So when I'm reading about Mizuki's biography, I have always believed that we dropped the atomic bomb, and that that was a good thing that America did. And like, I read the statistics of Operation Overlord, how we saved more lives by dropping the atomic bomb than we would have." that would have been lost if we'd actually done a full blood invasion. Somehow America yeah. was the good guys. Yeah. And then you read Showa and you you look at stuff and music saying like at the time Japan we had no bullets. Like literally in our guns we had no bullets. Our our weaponry at that point in time was empty sticks. Um, the great battleship Yamato that they had built had no ammunition and could not fire its weaponry to the, and it had enough oil and this was the, as much as I, cause I translate Star Blazers now, so it's kind of funny this happens, but the end of the Yamato it's a noble end was that it had no no ammunition couldn't fire, it had no gas it couldn't move, and so they moved it as far as its remaining gas reserves would take it and tried to coast it in hoping that it would hit an American ship. Um, But it didn't. It basically was coasting, and every single person on there died because the American ship simply shelled it to death and it went to the bottom of the sea. And so Japan literally had no ability, no functional war power left.
0: They literally had no food either.
1: They had no food. These soldiers were never
0: resupplied. Yep. Uh, you even see that in, in onward to our noble deaths like, well, And, they, and, they and that's, because of,
1: that's because of MacArthur's Strategy Which was enormously effective So MacArthur's strategy MacArthur was against dropping the atomic bomb Because he believed that you could simply That Japan was being an island You could cut off their supply lines And just wait and be patient No food gets in They can't do anything They can't resupply And so they surrender And it worked MacArthur did that at Rabaul. MacArthur did that at New Britain. MacArthur advocated for doing that in, on the main island of Japan. He said, hey, we'll circle the island with our fleet and we'll wait. And it may take a year. I don't know how long it'll take, but no Americans will die. And, no, you know, and Japanese people will die, or they'll starve to death. But eventually we'll just sit here and we'll just play the long game. But the American scientists really wanted to test out their atomic bombs. They wanted to give it a sh- to see if they would work or not. And so, so basically you have, to, you have to confront the reading all of this stuff and learning more about history is that the long-cherished national... And the idea that the, um, that the atomic bombs saved more lives than they cost was carefully crafted propaganda on the part of the United States government to sell to the American people. They built that line and they sold it. They sold it well.
0: Well, see, I, I, I've always wondered what would happen if Roosevelt had lived. Oh, everyone wonders
1: that. Yeah, everyone wonders that. Yeah, sure. because, yeah. you know, yep. Truman was not-headed, yep. was uh, ill-informed. And Truman was, um, from because I did a lot of research, because uh, I wanted to do a good job with Shoah. So, you know, Truman was essentially told about the existence of the atomic bomb the day he became president. And he was also given... FDR's plans um, as he th- was able to interpret them. So he was trying to carry on what he thought was FDR's legacy, but he didn't really know. I mean, the,
0: yeah, I don't want to go too far into yeah. the historical weeds, but uh, I can't remember the name of his vice president during his previous two terms, mm. uh, but he was like socialistic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like he would have likely not dropped the atomic bomb under any circumstance. Sure, Roosevelt at the time. Yeah. So if they hadn't made the decision in 1944 to yeah. change vice presidential candidates.
1: Well, then when you read um, when you read some of the science, it's
0: like everything is so yeah, it's so interesting how we came so close to well, history being
1: completely different. And you read the, the books of some of the scientists at the time, like a who who has gone on record multiple times saying that the target of the atomic bomb was never Japan. You know, from their point of view, Japan was already a defeated nation. So it was a demonstration of power against the Soviet Union. It would, the whole point of dropping the bombs on Japan was to say, hey, we have this power, Russia, back off. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise they thought Russia would have done a uh, land grab down into Asia and basically swamped through Mongolia and probably attempted to take pieces of Japan absorbed in the Soviet Union. So in that way, from a long-term perspective, Maybe the bombs did save more lives, just not Japanese lives, because they curtailed a Soviet US war.
0: Well, and there's where, like, reading the early volumes of Show What come into effect, too, where they were very powerful, because the Japanese invasion of Manchuria yep. kind of led to this power vacuum in China that led to Russia expanding their influence, and mm-hmm. therefore. The need for us to kind of have a beta show of force with them. Totally. So everything kind of plays together in this fascinating geopolitical spectrum. Mm-hmm. But to, to get something out of show, it doesn't require you to
1: understand any of that. Yeah.
0: In fact, you you can read show without really grokking that and just, t- just
1: follow along And with just follow along, media. yeah. But also, you learn so much about them. Just, it's such a. It's, it's almost self so history in a way. It is, yeah. Um, but it's also, I mean, it's a lot to absorb. And there's, like, one of the things I tell people when, when you know, because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I don't know anything about so it. like, look, man, this, this book costs $25 and it's 500 plus pages and it'll change your life, which is not, not something that a lot of comics can do. I really believe it. It's one of the few books I've read of any type, comic,
0: not comic, yeah. that's really changed my perspective on things. Yeah, I have none- And in a way that, like, yep.
1: I need it. Mm-hmm. Because, as you say, like we were, we were propagandized as kids. Yep. And I have no doubt that Showa is my contribu- contribution to world literature. I mean, that's like, you know, long after I'm dead, I think that Showa will still be being read. Where's a lot of the other stuff that I worked on, will not. But that that one's the big heavy bomb.
0: But I don't know, I mean, Mizuki's uh, book lord characters... Those are true heroes in Japanese society.
1: They are, but only in Japanese society. Whereas I think up plays on a world stage.
0: I think it's just interesting how that became such a big force in Japanese society and it still
1: is to yeah. this day.
0: Yeah, you were talking about there's like theme parks, there's
1: statues. Oh yeah, yeah, there are. Yeah, and then that was, you know, that was because like so prior to Mizuki coming in as an artist, like. Japan had gone through, essentially, a campaign to erase its own past, you know, and not just, and that was because of their con, their um, interaction with Western nations, and Japan saw themselves as really backwards and superstitious, and they still had these animistic religions, and they still believed in all this stuff, and so the government actually went through and made it illegal, because the Japanese government was authoritarian, to talk about any any of these monsters, you know, it was like it was illegal to believe in tengu. It was illegal to believe in kappa. And any artist or writer that wanted to create a book, like there's a very famous retelling of uh, one of Japan's famous ghost stories, the Yōchia Kaidan, where the author has to was forced by the government to write a preface saying that like there's no such thing as ghosts. Anyone who believes in ghosts has a psychological disorder, <laughs> and that this book is simply written for the enjoyment. But you know, don't take it too seriously. Wow! Yeah, imagine. I know, right? And Mizuki like was just such a such a treasure trove of imagination, and he remembered all. And and Mizuki himself, like you cannot really talk about Mizuki without mentioning his um his governess Nounamba, who was the um, the Dorothy Valence, who was the woman who taught the Brothers Grimm's all about the old fairy tales. I mean, she plays the role in history as the woman who knew the stories, you know, the old woman who knew all the stories and told them Mizuki. And he managed to, you know, that made such a huge impression on him that he remembered them all. And when he got to reintroduce Nonoma's stories to Japanese culture, you know, he was just this massive linchpin of transmission of the past and the future that otherwise might have disappeared. This is where I just
0: love studying the history and it's like, yeah, I, I kind of stereotype as a historian of comics, but uh, really it all feeds into other areas of society and history in oh general. Does, yeah. And therefore, it just illuminates our world in ways that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I just find that fascinating. And it, as a translator, how do you approach performing the translation that's true to the work you're, well, to the intent of the work, I guess is the best I mean, way of. As
1: trans, a translator, I mean, it's really it. strange because a translation is such a, I mean, I guess like all artistic art. art which is a career, it's a lonely profession because basically there's me in the room and I always feel like in a a room when I'm doing my work as a translator, there's two people there. There's me and the original artist. You know, living or dead, that's my job. My job is to to serve the artist, not the reader necessarily. Um, And I serve them best by getting inside of their head like just trying to like, like absorb who they are as a human being. And I, I go outside of like the written work. Like, like when I was um, translating Satoshi Kon's work for Dark Horse, for example, I went online and I started reading like his private diaries and like, you know, his private postings because to try and figure out who he was because that will make such a difference as to what, what he was trying to say in his works. Because there's the words on the page. But the words on the page are not necessarily going to be the meaning or the intent. And so you have to kind of, like, be able to look beyond the words and try to figure out what is this person actually trying to say.
0: So what do you do? What's your exercise to put yourself in that person's mindset? Because you were saying, like, the Matsumoto approach is different. It
1: was really tough. Like, Matsumoto was such a tough nut. And, like, so one thing, like, what do I do? Like, nowadays, I translate the same people over and over enough where it's super easy for me to slip into their head. Like, if you want me to translate a Mizuki work or, Ma- or Lady Matsumoto, I can do it, you know. Um, but, when you're presented with a new author, it always is a period of transition and you, like, You just basically try to read and just try to sort of imagine who they are. So, I mean, what's your exercise, though?
0: So if you're translating Saxon to Japanese, Mm -hmm. how do you, like, determine what
1: my intent was for some fiction that I wrote? Uh, Honestly, I will go and I'll I'll look at their picture and try to develop a sense of who they are as a human being. I'll look at some of their... I try to look at some of their fan stuff that they do because almost everyone just uh, like just does stuff that's not work, and I really try to get a sense of them about like what do they want? Why are they here? Why do they make art? You know, why are they doing all of this? And I think that helps you gain a better picture of them. But I also think that like starting out, like it takes a while to get in sync with them. The first hundred pages are never gonna be that great. Mm-hmm. And I'll often go redo the first hundred pages. Because it just takes a while of getting into inside their head. You know. Yeah, we were
0: talking earlier about how it's not about it's about the intent
1: of the of the work, not about the actual words on the page. Yeah, absolutely. And there's you know, you can tell a bad translator, a bad translator will translate what's written. A good translator will translate what's meant. And um, I think that like even in the English language, you know, it's like uh, I don't know. Let's think of something super simple. Let's say I sat there and I said, "Hey, Jason, that's bullshit." If I were to translate that into Japanese, it would literally say, "That is the feces of a cow. Uh-huh. and it would not at all carry the nuance that's intended that that person intended to say. So maybe we drop all their words, you know, and think about what were they, what was the emotion they were attempting to project here, and that's where you really have to dive down into. It's like Okay, so the words are there to carry an emotion. And so what I want is the reader to experience the same emotional reaction here that they did in Japanese. And maybe I need to use totally different words. You so know.
0: you have a, a degree in Japanese. You lived do, in Japan yeah. for a period of time. And that's helped to inform this. But I think a lot of this is kind of Just getting your hands dirty in in translating a lot of this work and kind of building your own competency around it.
1: And it's also, you know, I also like, I mean, not only all that, but I also like to say that it's also my comics competency. I mean, the fact that I grew up reading comics makes a huge difference to me as a translator. Because, like, I'll do these translations. I do these things called translation battles with Jay Rubin. Um, And Jay Rubin is a very esteemed translator. He was a Harvard professor, and he's a translator of of Murakami Haruki. And so it's funny because we will basically all translate some of Haruki's words and then we'll compare my translation with his and then he'll translate like a comic that I work on. And because he doesn't have the comic background, he's not very fluent at able to, and able to sort of like get inside the comic, you know, mm-hmm. which I think is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. You know, not only in terms of like sound effects, but in dealing with speech balloons and in dealing with... Um, understanding how, co- how dialogue fragmentation works differently within inside of a comic book versus within inside of a page.
0: Where you just have to approach things in a way that's different from really any other medium. Oh yeah, completely. Because so you have to be concerned with the economy on the page, yep. with the way that you fill the balloon, with the physical with the space, way that like, yep. it illuminates character too. Uh-huh. I mean, I think the thing that we don't talk about a lot in comics is comics as a two, two-dimensional space. Yep. Where you only have a limited amount of space and you have to be economical well,
1: with that space. And also when you're doing a comic, especially when you're when you're doing that the dialogue portion of it, is you really have to look at the the face of the artist. Like what did they draw? What is that character attempting to project? Right. You know. And I mean that's one of the luxuries of doing lettering. Well, I mean you do that in America, I and mean, you do the lettering after the fact as well. But you can actually look at the art and say like, "Oh, this character is very angry," or this character is laughing. And that nuance informs what the dialogue is going to be about. You should be able to tell
0: by the character's body language yeah. really what's trying to be conveyed, and, and the language should, should kind of convey that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. also in Japanese you may say things in different ways or have different subtleties well, around the way that information is communicated.
1: Yeah, and any language, I mean like one of the pro, one of the problems, the biggest problem in Japanese is that because of the nature of the written language is they can convey an immense amount of more information than you can in English, in a small space. I mean, they just can, an immense amount. Huh. Um, Japanese has the ability, so they have this thing called furigana, which is basically supertitles of words. So let's say I introduce a new character, and I said that this character's name is is um, Professor. And above Professor is um, furigana, supertitled Warlord. And so they manage to convey all of that nuance in this one title. It's like, we know that everyone calls him Professor because that's what he would like to be called, but at the same time we also know he's a vicious warlord. Ah, And the Japanese language has the ability to portray that in a way that the English ability does not. We just don't have that. No, we just don't have it. We don't have it in our written language. It does not simply exist. So
0: does this feed into the uh, concept of Matsumoto that you were talking about earlier, where characters will often speak this dialogue, that just
1: represents who they are and what their well, relationship is. I mean, is. but Matsumoto... I mean, Jason jumped into this. It was a whole conversation we had an entirely different earlier time. But um, Leita Matsumoto, <laughs> as an artist... And every artist has an, has their own unique voice. But his art, his dialogue is so poetic. And it was such an odd transition for me to get to Matsumoto from, from uh, Mizuki because Mizuki is so earthy, right? That guy is just... Mizuki is just... He is all about the here and now, like Mizuki is dirt on your shoes, Mizuki is sweat on your brow, Mizuki is being in the middle of machine gun fire and needing to take a crap. I mean like he is just all about the human experience, whereas Matsumoto is all about transcending the human experience, he's all about ideals, and he's all about, um, you know, like just these really big giant concepts, and so when you get into his work, like, like, no one poops in Matsumoto's world, no one's shoes are ever less than polished, no one's gun is ever out of ammunition, because it doesn't matter, He's, he is Plato's cave, he is ideals, and nothing but, but philosophical ideals, you know, far beyond human experience, uh, and so his characters speak in this manner, which is just pure idealism, and if you... Translate him directly into English, it sounds stupid as fuck. It just sounds terrible. It sounds so bad. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's like you and me sitting down here and having a beer. It's like, you know, I'd be like, hey, Jason, it's been a long time. You know, Matsumoto's don't talk like that. They're like, Jason, long have the wars been fought since once we were together. We sailed as brethren across the <laughs> sea of stars. A glass filled is never a glass filled, but it is. A comrade's lifeblood that passes between us. And should I touch my glass to yours? It is not as two human beings meeting, but as two warriors whose path for a small time <laughs> we walk together. You know, what I mean it's like literally this wow. kind of that's Matsumoto's dialogue. And so you have to like figure out how do I make that work in English. And when I first started doing Matsumoto, I was translating him like Mizuki. And I realized that I was like, and it worked terribly, which is awful. I'm like, this is dead on the page. It's fucking dead. Um, so I started listening to opera when I was translating Matsumoto, because that's what it took to get me in the right mood, you know, just like listening to this, like Wagner's Wagner's operas and Gata Damarang and realizing that you're trying to tap into an emotional part far beyond humanity, you know, everyone must be writ large, everyone must be giants, who Kirby, stride the earth? It's Kirby, only Kirby on steroids in a way. It is, yeah. It's like this yeah. grandiose, Lee Kirby world exactly, that's like right?
0: beyond, but never actually live.
1: And in a way that's so powerful too. It is. Well, and it's like it is like Kirby in that Kirby stuff works in Kirby's world. And if you buy Kirby's world and you go, like that's one of the things. Like when they recently did some of the uh, the Marvel movies. Like I love Thor, not Thor Ragnarok, because they went full Kirby, right? You know, they're just like. We're not going to try and hide it. We're just going to say, like, yeah, this is full Kirby. But they still also humanize it in a way I think Kirby wouldn't have. So they- I know you haven't read Mr. Miracle, Tom King's
0: Mr. Miracle. No, I haven't. No. I'd be really curious what you think yeah. of it. Because it's Kirby done small. Okay. And it, it's almost like Kirby crossed with Brian Michael Bendis. Huh. But in a way, it like celebrates Kirby in a really different way. Huh. I was having big debates with uh, Daniel Alkin and, and uh-huh. uh, Keith Silva about this. Huh. Um, but imagine Kirby as if everything's tiny, uh-huh. and every little thing still counts, and, and the godlike emotions are still important. Uh-huh. But you're still living. The, but you're now living in day to day life. Interesting, because like Varda and Scott Free, the ultimate. Kirby couple, right? I mean, uh-huh. they're the, like—he's a survivor, he's a skater Yeah, yeah. Literally,
1: this this devastation of this uh-huh. from this world. I mean, even like look at Mr. Miracle. His name is Scott Free. Scott Free. Oh, I mean, come well, on. And he's,
0: he's this five foot yeah. eight guy oh, and, yeah. who marries a seven big, foot tall whose Amazonian name is literally
1: or, Big Barda. Big
0: Barda, yeah. and she's the most gorgeous woman I yeah. ever imagined. She could beat anything up, and and like the, the mechanics of that couple is so fascinating. It's so actually so Kirby Well, it's you know stuff like that. Set us off on a tangent. No, and
1: I'm always happy to go on fans of the comics because like stuff like that it makes like like Kirby stuff like, and I've not read that I read um, I read the Visions which I thought was really good, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't read Mister Miracle because I've honestly I never cared about Mister Miracle as a character I have to say that I like. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I know it's it is. It is a little surprising, but it's also true. But I did love like like, Ker- like Kirby stuff, like, like his naming. You know, you've got like Supertown and Highfather and Big Barda and like all this stuff. It's so cheesy, but within the context, it makes sense. And it's always reminded me a lot of CC Beck and his work on Captain Marvel. That you have like Takitani, a tiger who literally has an origin story of he found a bunch of books and read all the books <laughs> and that's how he learned to become a talking tiger. No magic involved, nothing like that. And within the context of the ridiculous world that Otto Binder and C.C. Beck created, it all works. But as soon as you try to interpose that onto the, something like Superman's world or Wonder Woman's world, it just, it just dies. It dies on the page because they are not compatible worlds. You have to believe in Neverland. You have to believe in this, you know, and you have to allow for this creative vision. Like same with Mizuki and and, uh, Kitaro stuff. Like, you know, I think that, I think there are certain auteurs in comics who created such a unique, individualized world that no one can ever do that again, right? no one will ever be able to make Kitaro ever like and other people they will probably try but it will never be I mean I shouldn't say never because you just said Tom King did a good job with Mr. Miracle but but that's a frequent argument that I
0: really think is intriguing is that why build on top of other people's visions so you know we're, we're just
1: finishing with Steve Gerber book uh-huh. and Gerber had we, one of the things we include in the Gerber book which is, is weird because Gerber had nothing unique to say in comics well, yeah. <laughs> no, Gerber was just another again one of those unique auteurs who was just right. like well he's yeah. like yeah at one point before he died Gerber
0: had a Yahoo group and he uh-huh. to respond to, to uh, ordinary people's questions yeah. to him which was really cool and one of the guys was like I really want to do a Howard the Duck comic and Gerber says back don't do a Howard the Duck it's my character But it's not that it's my character It's not that it's me yeah. It's that you should do your thing You should be an author about your own thing Create your own creation uh-huh. Maybe derivative in some ways sure. But it's going to reflect your
1: own approach to the world And yeah. that's
0: the power of, of Not just comics but, but any art form
1: Sure. But, and that, that's a fine thing for Steve Gerber to say But he doesn't realize by saying that That he is in fact Steve Gerber And that not That out of a thousand creators There's only one the other 999, they don't have the ability to... Man- and I, I don't know, this seems rude to say, but I think it's also true. They are not on the same wavelength. And so there's a lot of people who are just maintaining. And that's fine. They do a good job of it. You know, yeah. They maintain the strain. Like, John Basima on Conan is a great example. Like, he did the best Conan ever. It's not innovative, it's not... Amazing, he did nothing new with the character, but he did the most classic version you'll ever have, and he maintained. Well, sure, I mean, we could talk about your friend
0: Jim Zub, He's oh, yeah. playing with the play- playing in that playground with other characters he didn't create. Yeah, but he's doing fun, interesting, different stuff, and mm. it's super entertaining. It is, it's not gonna, you know, it may or may not be considered a classic 20 years from now, but it's, um,
1: yeah, it's reflecting his take on them too. And Jim, I think, is, is you know, I would. I love Jim And I think he's like He's a fanboy You know Absolutely And he loves it He loves Playing with all the toys In the toy box And I think he And he also does His own stuff And he's You know He I don't know That Jim we oh, in trouble Sorry Jim Hi yeah, Don't I listen me to, me. to you, Jim. Um, I don't think that He has the same Uniqueness of vision That like a Gerber has And I don't think That Jim himself Would, would say that I get this. Okay Yeah I mean, I th- and I think it's okay. I think, that, I think there's nothing wrong with comics having... Like, another person, I really, really love his stuff. And this is always hard for me in a podcast because I actually know these people in real life, so sorry. Um, <laughs> Jeff Parker, I think, is an amazing writer. Yeah, I love that guy's work. But I think that he does his best work playing with <laughs> other people's toys.
0: What we're really saying is that people have different things that they love to do. Love exactly. To yeah. Right, and... Some people just love to stay in the other people's toys. Some people like to yeah. move on to the Some people like Kurt Busiek who do his own version of those same toys. Yeah. yeah.
1: And not everyone has to be. Like, I think that there's a, there's a wrongness in saying it's like, oh, there's Alan Moore who's somehow better than J.M. DeMattis. And I don't think so. Well, because Alan is
0: also derivative. And so is, so is your pal Magnolia, right? I mean, Hellboy is his own vision, but it's also somewhat primitive. I will... It's built on top of myth in some I ways. Will, I will
1: fight that battle. Okay. If that's a battle, you want to fight him I, right. Okay. I honestly so, believe that, that Mignola is... I think that Mignola is, is a homer. I think he's one of those guys who will be reading his works... Two, three hundred years past, we're all dead, and everyone else has been forgotten to dust. I think Magola's work will survive. So, don't get
0: me wrong, I yeah. love his work. Yeah. And I think his line work alone is just his use of blacks is unlike anyone else's. Remember, we did the, the piece on Cosmic Odyssey, yeah. which was, you know, yeah, yeah. 1992 or something. And his work on that was just so much smarter just, than anyone else's. I just
1: think that his work transcends genre, medium, everything I honestly, and this is coming from me who reads a lot of stuff from past centuries and so I see how the sort of like the rake separates stuff and some stuff lasts and some other stuff doesn't mm-hmm. last I think that his work has a quality to it that may not be appreciated now as much as it is a lot like Lovecraft was not appreciated in his time but I, I would bet solidly that 200 years from now people are still talking about Hellboy how do I do to get too philosophical? What do you think that quality is? I think it's numinous. I think it's this quality that taps. What was that? Numinous. Numinous, Yes. I think it's a quality that taps into something that is deep within the human psyche that transcends zeitgeist, that transcends the modern into the eternal. And is I it, think is that, that how you define that term, numinous? Yes. I was about to
0: Google translate that or <laughs> <to> something. <translate laughs> numinous. So <laughs>
1: numinous is it's an old term, and like so numinous. Like if you think about like. And, sorry, I'm going to get deep into art history, but here, I mean, there's there's certain artists, you know, like, look at, um, at Turner and some of these old British artists who captured what, at the time, was a term called awesome, which nowadays, unfortunately, has become a cheesy term. Awesome! Yeah, right? But if you really think of it as, like, capturing a spirit, like, something of awe that makes you experience awe, you know? And it's, and Numinosity is the same way. It's like, it's beyond flesh, beyond spirit. You know, it taps into the deep magic of being a human being. So is he the one who did those nautical paintings where the boats often seem like they're imbued by a light from God? That is exactly it. Yep. Yes. Uh, And so I think that Magnola has tapped into the same Numinosity. I think that his, his works are just transcendent. So I'm not sure we ever talked about this, but... Which is, is weird because once again I like Mike Manilla. Hi, I think you're a human no, being, but also a god. I think, also I think, god that, that I think to
0: that's also us. I think that's really interesting because yeah. so you know I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan. Yeah, especially from his like oh. big, big time
1: from 64 to 66. One of my favorite things about um, so I give this speech on the history of Japanese um, artists and I try to tie them all into various. Uh, Bands, which I found out from doing this that I'm an old man because no one gets my reference anymore. <laughs> but I consider Osamu Tezuka to be like the Beatles um, in that he is a he is a a technician, like he creates really good stuff. But then sh- Mizuki Shigeto is Bob Dylan, he is the auteur with a personal vision. Well, that okay, well that's very that explains why I love his work so much. Yeah,
0: because to Dylan, especially in the period who is most fluid. Um, I really felt like some of that music has a pipeline to the divine. Absolutely. Where like, yeah. it's almost like channeled directly from some higher spirit into his mm-hmm. actual yeah. head. And it's just there. You, know, yep. when you listen to a song like Visions of Johanna,
1: yeah.
0: where like, it's this enormously long song, mm-hmm. but it's suffused with this, this 3M. The vision. word you're
1: looking for is numinous. I'm the just throwing it out there. Uranus yeah. <laughs> <Numerous>. <laughs> Uh, You know the feeling. You just haven't had a word for it yet. So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's the feeling of jewels and binoculars hang from the head of the mule.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It it transcends human experience into something that is, you know, for whatever you you know. I don't care because I'm not particularly religious, but I do believe in the concept of 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 an existence beyond flesh. You know, of some sort of like greater sensation.
0: Well I think art is one of those ways that you can experience that sensation. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be necessarily high art either. I mean Hellboy and Hell has scenes that are just so still and beautiful yeah. and calm that they just have this lumino- luminosity. Yes. That just
1: fills just fills oh, this yeah. void. Yeah, when I read Hellboy and Hell I was just like I was like, Oh my god, Mike, you have you have just you have created some, I don't know, just beyond anything. I'm, I think I think that it's such an impressive work that I honestly think that we are not, for the most part, able to appreciate it within our lifetime. I think it will take a good century of separation before people start to really dive into Hellboy and in Hell.
0: You got me thinking about some of my
1: other favorite moments in comics, but what do you think Mignola would say about that? You... I think he would call bullshit on me. I think that um, Mike... From my personal experience, my personal experience with him suffers from severe imposter syndrome, huh. um, almost crippling, to huh. the point to where he, um, Mike Magnola's garbage can, is one of the greatest tre- treasure <laughs> troves on earth. I have, I have seen the stuff that he throws away because he is in pursuit of a level of perfection and it reminds me a lot of Michelangelo and the fact that Michelangelo was in pursuit of manifesting the true hand of God in art and would accept nothing less of himself. And so when he got to the point to where a single flaw in a work existed, he would rather smash the entire statue to pieces with a hammer. And I think that Mike is the same way. Um <laughs> and, but uh, this fingernail is wrong, therefore... Oh, yeah, the no, I've seen, wrong. I've seen the stuff Mike throws away. I would pay... Many people would pay thousands of dollars for the stuff that Mike tosses. But for him, it is less than perfect. And so, you know... Um, but he also, like... Like, Mike went, Mike once swing in. Mike is, is just charming. Like, I remember at the last Rose City Comic-Con I was at, I went and got a... Um, and I feel bad telling the story, so once again, sorry, Mike. But I went and got a uh, sketch from Adam Hughes, and I brought it over and I showed Mike. I was like, Oh yeah, I just went and got this Mary Marvel sketch from from Adam Hughes. And Mike just looks at it, and is like, I'm not gonna do the voice. Um, Mike just looks, he's like, he's like I bet he used a pen, didn't he? He didn't even use a pencil sketch. He just took a pen on a piece of paper and drew that. And I'm like, Yeah, he did. And Mike's like, motherfucker. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so because Mike is such a, I think he's like. He's just—he's a very careful and deliberate artist, you know—and just so completely—I don't know—he produces magic.
0: Yeah, I interviewed uh, an assistant to Dick Giordano the other week, the buddy of mine. Uh, he was saying the same thing about Giordano. Is Giordano like the assistant had to draw a horse at one point, uh, and um, Giordano says, "Oh yeah, horse, no big deal. It's just a combination of different shapes." They start drawing circles and drawing lines uh, in the circles and puts the circles together yeah. all of a sudden there's a so, so horse yeah. it's the easiest thing in the world to draw because it's just what you do and it's after a certain do, amount yeah. of time it's just this combination yeah. of different Look, elements and, and I think like, is, I think there's trivial com- in a way I think
1: there's comic artists wonderful comic artists and writers that are like that they're you know they're not auteurs you know they're work they're journeymen and yeah. they're doing great and it's fantastic And you find that in any profession. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. There's nothing wrong with the Jerry Ordways of the world doing their... I fucking love Jerry Ordway. I would love to have a sketch by Ordway. Jerry Ordway recently did a piece with uh, Alex DeCampy, which was this Lovecraftian horror series. And I loved it so much because it was so not what I imagined Ordway to draw. And I don't know why Alex DeCampy's like, Hey, I wrote this... Lovecraftian horror series. Jerry Ordway. I don't know how that happened, but God, it was wonderful.
0: It was... Would you want Ordway to draw Conan story? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That would be really interesting because I would wonder if yeah. be that being too clean. Oh, it would be too, and the, and the Conan fans would hate it, but I would absolutely adore it. Absolutely. Do you, do you go crazy for anything, but any, anything Conan? No, not anything Conan. Um, so, I you love the piece, Emma. I do. I Obviously. He, well, he's... He was, I mean, no one tapped into the, like, a lot, actually I've been rereading a lot of the Conan's recently, um, and especially, like, because, you know, Barry Windsor Smith is held up as the gold standard, but I actually don't think he is. I think that his artwork was very good, but I think that it was comparatively of a higher level than everyone else's at the time, and so it looked better than it is in retrospect, you know, but I actually think Buscema was better. Even though he was he was a journeyman, you know, instead of an auteur. Okay, so this is one of my pet theories: is the level
0: in baseball they call it value above replacement player. Okay, and if you talk about the the average pitcher in 1970 and his value versus replacement player, uh. is much like. The difference between an outstanding pitcher and an average pitcher uh-huh. in 1970 is much higher than it is now. Okay. Because most pitchers are better now.
1: Ah, okay, okay. And
0: in the same way, yeah. most artists are better now. Uh-huh. So if you look at the absolute value of a replacement yep. artist, so to speak, I actually think Usama's a more solid performer than someone like Winter Smith. Now, Winter Smith on Red Nails yeah. is transcendent. That's it, a is, it is gorgeous work. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. as good as comics work yeah, ever yeah, yeah. was. Yeah. If you talk about Winter Smith on. Than the Barbarian number five or something. Jesus, it was really bad. He was a Kirby clone. He was right. awful. Yeah. So
1: it's like, is it peak yeah. or is it right. long term value? And also the fact that Windsor Smith, remember, dropped out, which means he has a small body of work, which is always going to be, right. more. It's the James Dean thing. Right. What? Exactly. Exactly. He made these twenty six issues. Talk about an outdated uh, reference, yeah. by the so way. So he never got to make issue one hundred. He never. People never got right. to be bored of him, right? he was like I reached this peak level at Red Nails I, look at the, what I did here look at the sweat on Conan's brow look at the pre raphaelite images look at all of this and I'm done and I tap out and I'll pass the torch to someone who does good work you know right so yeah
0: I mean that does appreci- make me appreciate someone like Kirby much more 102 issues of Fantastic Four plus the annuals like oh. he's really Kirby was a he was a worker yeah you know
1: so yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wanted to make sure
0: we talked about Conan though. But yeah, so I would.
1: I, mean, I love talking to like my favorite thing, and that's one. That's one of the things I think that I bring to the table as as a translator and everything else is that I love American comics. I love Japanese comics, and I do not consider them to be in separate categories. Like, like if it were my, if I had my own dream of a comic book store, Kitaro and Hellboy would be shelved next to each other because they are both folklore comics, you know. And I think that there's not. I don't think it matters that much what country a certain comic book comes from. I hate this this incorrect dichotomy that there's well, also, manga. Also, and comics. art
0: comics versus pop comics? I think that's a false dichotomy. Also, also. Wants, yeah, I
1: completely agree. Completely agree. I just don't see that difference. Yeah. An autor
0: is an auteur. Good commercial work is good commercial yep. work. And it doesn't matter who's creating it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, like Jaime Hernandez, in particular. His, his character
1: continuity is as great as anyone's character continuity mm-hmm. over a period of 30 years. Well, and like, think of somebody, like some other like some of my favorite, like just die-hard, you know, favorite comic artists of all time. One of them is, which is Matt Wagner. And yeah. I think that Matt Wagner is just, I mean, is he an auteur on the level of, uh, I don't know, like a Frank Miller? Or, I don't know. Maybe, no, he's not. Well, except for maybe with Mage. But at the same time, he creates what he creates is just so solidly good. Every single issue, every single time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mage finally finished. Did you? This, it was
1: a it did, oddly yes.
0: bittersweet moment to read that final issue. It was
1: immensely bittersweet. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing him in the next comic that's mentioned, and just sort of like, you know, I don't know. Matt Wagner. Like, I hate to think that like like somehow he's done. Cause he, he should never be done. But um, yeah. So what's your next dream project? What's the next thing you really want to do? Yeah, that is a really tough question because one of the things I've really struggled with since I, since I started working in comics professionally, I have actually accomplished everything I've set out to do. Everything. And I don't know how to deal with that emotionally. Wow. I, um, I, had a, I used to have this thing on what I called my hope shelf, which was these like, dream projects, and I have done every single one of them. And with the most recent release of Space Battleship Yamato, I will be done with everything I ever wanted to accomplish. And so I don't know what to do. It's like that weird question, well, what now? Do Do I just go back and just start doing stuff to make money, to get paychecks? Because I don't have any more grand visions. I did it all. So that's
0: a little bit of how I feel after finishing American Comic Chronicles in the nineteen nineties. Yeah. Is that, that was four years worth of work mm-hmm. and it was an incredible amount of work. Yeah. And it's out. It came out December twentieth and the reviews are all positive. It's not like we have a lot of yeah. errata to do against it. So it's like I've devoted so much of my time to getting this one huge mm-hmm. thing done. Yeah. What do I do next? I
1: know, it's a really weird question for me. Yeah, but it's, it's like fun to do this yeah. podcast thing, but I don't consider it like a real
0: I, I want something that's physical, right? that's in book form that I can hold in my hands. Do you want to do creative work of your
1: own? To put out that full book of Japanese cat folklore? I, and, I don't know, because once again, I, I, I'm going to hit a crossroads, because I did. like Maybe eight years ago, I wrote my list of what I wanted to accomplish. I have accomplished everything on that list. Everything. Literally everything. And I don't know what to do now. I mean, do I make a new list? Um, with the possibility that I could fail, do I simply put a bow on it and say like I did it, and now I'm going to go be a fan, you know, and stop working my ass off so much? Think about um, who, wrote, who, wrote, who wrote all those movies, the Maltese. Oh, Dashiell Hammett. Yeah, I think is Dashiell Hammett. I might be wrong. Yeah, no, that's the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, and then the big no, but he wrote The Big Sleep. Um, Jesus. All right, I'm going to be back cause I can't remember his name, but um, he was taught one of the interview once, He was like. Do you worry about how Humphrey Bogart has ruined your books? And he pointed to his bookshelf with all of his books there, and he said, they're all still there. Right. You know, right. what has happened to my books? A movie was made of them, but they're all still there, exactly as I wrote them. Well, I just, I just,
0: like, literally just, we were talking about Captain Marvel, the, the Shazam movie earlier. Uh, oh, One of the it. guys was posting about, uh, on, the, uh. Uh, on the Comics Beat forum, too, yeah. which is a weird place to so post this, he's like... Well, Captain Marvel shouldn't be a child uh, because Billy's a child. The whole point is that Captain Marvel's an adult and Billy's a child, and this is about how characters are different. Like, that's your Captain Marvel, and that's cool, but that's not what they made in the movie. You still have your comic, you still have your original story. Big deal. And yes, don't shut yourself off because you disagree with it.
1: And Captain Marvel, the Captain Marvel I love, and I think Conan is the same way, is that he is an incredibly complicated character to write or to to create stories around because he doesn't have a core mythology the same way Batman or Superman does, right? I mean like a lot and so a lot of people will come to it and I, I talked to James Robinson about this once and I thought it was really interesting because I was talking about how I love Captain Marvel. And he's like there's no one harder in the DC universe to write than Captain Marvel because there's a couple of roads you can go down. One is treating Billy as a child. And that's easy. You know, um they did that in the Justice League, you know. It was easy. He's a buffoon, he's a child, he's stupid. And you know it's one of the paths you can take. The other one with just Jeff Jones' parent path, it's like, oh we'll make him we'll try to re you know, make him a little more modern, you know, more more realistic. He's like, but Autobinder never was attempting either of those paths, you know. He was attempting a path of purity of heart, which is almost impossible for a writer to do anything with. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, Walt Disney talking about that with Mickey Mouse at the same time. He's like, I have a hard time writing Mickey Mouse cartoons because Mickey Mouse is good. And Donald Duck is easier because Donald Duck's an asshole. But Mickey's always good. Yeah, Mickey's always good. Superman is always good. Not always. I think that's different. I think from its core inception... Superman, if you look at um, the sequel and Schuster stuff, Superman was not always good. He was a rough house, you know, he was a rabble rouser. He was, you know, I mean, look at those original Superman. Was he pure of heart? No, of course not.
0: No, he was an ethnic kid yeah. who was looking to take revenge on the people who are screwing mm-hmm. over his ethnic families. Bill- but he quickly yeah. normalized to kind of classic
1: American archetypes. Whereas Billy Batson was chosen because he was pure of heart. He was fucking Galahad. Which is how hard is it to write about Galahad? I mean, actually, it's funny because I have this um, this ECC panel that's coming up in a few weeks on cats, and I'm talking about some of my favorite people who wrote about cats at the same time. And I bring up this point because I bring up the idea is like we all write about cats, but people don't write about dogs as much. And I I bring that to the point saying it's like why? Because dogs are pure. And thus boring to write about. They aren't as interesting as cats who have a little bit of mischief or evil to their personality. It's like, like, I love my dog Mochi, but my dog Mochi would be Billy Batson. Just kind. know, here! Always good, always kind. They'll never do anything wrong. never do anything wrong. That is really hard to write about. And so thus Captain Marvel is really... And there's, like, Jeff Parker can manifest that. Um, very few writers can Very, very few writers. I think that's the problem we've always had with Captain Marvel comics over the years. Ordway probably came the closest. Mm -hmm. Ordway Ordway did great. Jeff Parker did great. Um, Like, those are probably the few. Like, even um, Jeff Smith, Captain Marvel was good. It wasn't wasn't great. I had trouble with that. But it was, Yeah. It wasn't great, and I will say Conan is the same way. It's like one of the things about Conan is that, and I'm, I'm a little bothered about this because Marvel's introducing Conan into their, you know, their their tough dude series, so there's like Conan and Venom, and like I don't know, like a crew of like, yeah, kick ass dudes. But Conan is not about being kick ass. Like Conan is, if you look at the source material, which which um, you know Roy Thomas really did, like really look at the source material, is that Conan is. Tony Stark at a time where technology didn't exist. Conan is brilliant. And that's the key thing about Conan is that he is fucking brilliant. He is able to speak every language on earth. He is able to um, you know form armies and you know he commands thousands of men in armies. Conan wears armor when armor calls for it and all of these other things, you know. So Conan is like is intensely brilliant is part of the key character. But you get writers who don't know how to write, brilliant barbarism, and so they revert to the easy path, which is is raw, which is brutality, yeah. I'll fight you. Mm -hmm. Which was never Conan's intent. Conan's intent was always that he was when born. The most strongest, but also the, you know, he's a ridiculous character because he's like Sherlock Holmes in a way. He's like the smartest guy in the room and the strongest guy in the room simultaneously, you know. In the wrong hands, that character just doesn't work. It doesn't work, yeah. Well, it's like the pure character, too. It just doesn't work if it's not the right character. Exactly. I think one of my best my best examples of Captain Marvel working, and this is one of those ridiculous miniseries that disappeared to time, was Underworld Unleashed back in the 90s when the fucking Neuron, like, Jesus, what a bad... It was a bad character. I don't even know who wrote you it. You know I read that. Yeah. You know, oh, I know God, all about was, that series. It was a bad series, but it was basically about the incarnate devil assembling all of the superheroes to, to grab the most pure soul on earth and everyone just assumed it was superman and neuron at the very that was his big reveal it was like superman i said it was after the pure soul and they were after captain marvel uh-huh. which i thought was fantastic and laid like the, the seeds of his own defeat yeah and i actually also thought that mark wave handled captain
0: marvel really well in kingdom, kingdom come. come that's exactly what i was thinking about yeah
1: Brilliant, brilliant. But, I mean, a, a, a hard, a hard character to write. I think it's a million times easier to write Spider-Man than Captain Marvel. And I think it's a million times easier to write Batman than Conan.
0: So if the movie comes out and it's not your thing, you don't care? It's not going
1: to be my thing. I've accepted that.
0: I've accepted that. <laughs> I've accepted that. Uh, the movie. Hopefully a, it'll be more your thing than the Spirit movie was my thing. But that's a whole yeah. different story. No, the movie is about
1: a character called Shazam. It has nothing to do with Captain Marvel, who I love. Shazam is a wholly new character created by Jeff Jones, and kind of wears a similar costume and has a similar outfit. Yeah, but is not Captain Marvel. And then the Captain Marvel who was the Marvel movie is
0: another totally totally different, different
1: character. Yeah.
0: Uh, and you know Your Captain Marvel Finished in 1952 and It did Yeah But ultimately and I don't care Because once again There's a few again, scattered yeah. Schaffenberger stories yes. and,
1: I mean ultimately Like What I care about the most Is the comics And the movies will never be As important as mm-hmm. the comics I mean. So I think that's it That's it Yeah. Man. That's I mean, it end.
0: At best It's a supplement That makes the comics More entertaining In some ways It's like expensive fan fiction <laughs>
1: Yeah but the comics are king, and always will be. I grew up on comics. I love comics. There's nothing, no form of entertainment to me that will ever be better than a comic book.
0: I'm curious What's going to be the next thing that you add to yourself, or that you take on. Well, you what's, going to, to, what's going to be
1: the thing? I think yeah. you're going to have your next thing. I don't know. We'll see. It's going to light you up. It's going to be in a transition point. You know, we will... We will see what happens. I've got I me mean, I've got a new book. I'm halfway through writing. I've got like you know other stuff, but at the same time. Yeah, I don't know. We'll
0: see. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. Sorry about the background noise there. We thought it would be an interesting experiment to record an episode. Uh, at a restaurant as we were having a couple of drinks. I think it mostly sounds good, but I really like to hear your feedback as to whether you want to hear us uh, do that kind of setting again um, at Jason Sachs, J S O N S A C K S on Twitter. Um, Regardless, thanks again for listening check out the show notes at comics, Com, And uh, we'll see you next week. Oh, thank you.